Hello, everybody. Welcome to the fourth episode. Now, I know the fourth episode was going to be recorded on Thursday, and it was, but phone disconnected, so I'm going to have to try him again on Saturday, and that was NBA legend. NBA legend. I can't think of his name right now. Too many to think of. (laughs) But right now on this actual fourth edition of the show... We have longtime former NFL official of 30 plus years, Jim Tunney. Am I correct on that? <laughs> yes, sir. All right, 31 years. Perfect. I'm glad I got that right. Now, bear with me. This is going to be a different interview than, than you're normally a part of. I'm going to get half and half. I'm going to do half of your notable games that you've done. I'm going to ask you about... Those games that you were in, that you refed in, what you remember most about them. First game, first game is the field goal, December 26, 1965, Baltimore and Green Bay. You were the field judge. What do you remember about that game? It was a playoff game, and uh, when the game went on to, to the next round, uh, dude, it was a... Um, High score, uh, no, excuse me, Baltimore had 10 to 7 with a few minutes left to go. And Don Chandler, the two little kicker for the Packers, came in and kicked a, it's a, it wasn't very far, probably a, a 30 yard field goal. We had wind and snow and, and made a curve to the right, like your tee shot that goes to the right. And this mm-hmm. went right over the top of the post. So the post above the crossbar was about 10 feet in those days. I was a field judge. I stood right under that post. And I can see that it went on the inside and the outside of the post. Now, that's a little technical, but that's that's the rule. And I think it'll feel a little good. You know, Coach Shula and the Colts were very, very unhappy about that. We went to overtime, because that tied up 10 to 10, went to overtime. And Chandler came in again, kicked a field goal right down the middle, right down the middle, made it easy on me. And, and Baltimore won at 10 to 7. Tom Matty. Who was the quarterback that day because John Unitas was hurt? Tom Matty went around the country after that with a cake with a crooked field goal uh, upright, showing that that's the way that's the way Tony called it. Mm-hmm. And Shula, that's um, I, I didn't know him very well because we he was the coach, I was an official, but he uh, they, they called up the Tony extension because the next year they raised that upright from 10 feet above the crossbar to 20 feet and he called that the tiny extension so we get down in history of the, the tiny extension in the 1965 playoff game wow that is something else it's hard to believe you remember all of this all this how many this was what i want to say god this was way before i was born i was born in 91 and this happened about 40, 50 something years ago. Hard to believe. I can't even <laughs> I can't even remember what I did five years ago. <laughs> That's amazing. Well, this was a very important game in the playoff and Coach Shula and I since then became really good friends and we would travel the country together and on cruise ships mm. speaking. He would always make fun of me as a with a <laughs> field goal and we had a just a great great time together. Coach passed away. Last year, we're sorry to see that, but we had a, we had a wonderful friendship. Maybe maybe because we had that difficult time 
being adversaries, uh, that brought us together. But it really was a, a wonderful opportunity to be with Coach Shaw, and, and I'm so sorry he's gone. Yeah, uh, yeah. I mean, a lot of these guys, unfortunately, have perished that you were in, uh, that you, you know, ref the games that you ref for, unfortunately. God bless them, and they're in a better place now. But the next game, oh, yeah. but the next game, you were an alternate referee, happened December 31st, 1967. It was called the infamous Ice Bowl game, Dallas at Green Bay. What about that game? I had moved in 1967 from a field judge where I was for five or six years to the position of referee. As a first-year referee, I didn't expect to get any playoff game. Mm-hmm. But um, they called me, uh, Mark Duncan and, and Art McNally called and said, I want you to go to Green Bay and be all the referee for this, for this playoff game between Green Bay and Dallas. I had already signed up to officiate college basketball, mm-hmm. which I had up for. And I had two games that weekend, Friday and Saturday night, and I couldn't take them. I had to go to Green Bay on Saturday morning. So they took me off the basketball games. I was disappointed with that. I didn't expect anything. When we got to Green Bay, in the afternoon, it was sunny, the fine went up to dinner that night, saw the moon. It was terrific. And then the next morning, I woke up in the snow. I just hit everything. I'm from California, so my my blood is very thin, and <laughs> I I had no gear for this. So all the crew went downtown. Anyway, December thirty first. That's an important day because that's the end of the year, mm-hmm. and this guy, an Army Navy shop, doing his inventory. And so he had been had been December thirty first. He might not have been there. And we pounded on the window and the door. And he didn't want to let us in. We told him what we were doing. We were refereeing the game that afternoon. Mm-hmm. So that morning, oh, 9 o'clock, I guess it was, we were downtown knocking on the door. We got gloves and mittens and, and uh, underwear and everything. All we could do after the game. So went to the game in the snow, which you know, the field was frozen. My job as an alternate referee in the game, I'm on the sideline. And they stationed me on the sideline with the Packers. So I sat next to Coach Lombardi most of the game. Uh, my job was to keep track of the down and the mm-hmm. distance so they would a mix up. And there wasn't. Officials did a great job on the field. Two of the officials on the field uh, had metal whistles, and the metal whistles froze to their lips. And when they pulled the, the whistle off, they pulled the skin off their lips. It was not, it was not a good sight to see. But mm-hmm. I was on the sidelines with all as long gear as I could, and when it was a timeout, I would go over to the Packers heater that was blowing there and stand next to heaters and, and warm up my fanny because it was really cold. Do you remember what the temperature was that day? 13 below. Woo-hoo. Oh, I couldn't imagine even playing in that, let alone refereeing in that. Woo-hoo. Ouch. They, they were, <laughs> the ground was frozen. I since changed out of Green Bay and put some heaters underneath the, the turf but there was nothing there and this uh, it was very foolish if you watch that and that last play where Bart Starr stepped across the goal line Jordan Kramer made a block on on the, the defensive line of the, of the Cowboys you can see them digging into the ground trying to get some traction for their cleats because they wore cleats in those days mm-hmm. they weren't got up they were cleats the cleats didn't, didn't adhere to that ice very well 
Damn, that's crazy. Wow. <laughs> Man, I'm glad I wasn't there that night. Woo! I'd be freezing I'd be freezing my cojones off. <laughs> the, place, the place was packed. Standing room only. The Green Bay doesn't pay much attention to Alcoa. Those fans are, are just terrific. And they're, they're, they're there. Of course, they probably left their flats with them. And they were drinking all kinds of whiskey to keep them warm. But they were, it was a full house that day. Yeah, yeah, that's crazy. But hey, they're royal fans, so I'm not going to com- I'm not going to complain there. You know, if they want to be royal fans, that's fine with me. You know, because I'm a royal fan yeah. to two two teams, the Bucks and the Chargers, so I know how they feel. So now the next game. So now the next game, it was November eighth, nineteen seventy, Detroit at New Orleans, the kick. And then, yep, Detroit had uh, Alex Charis as a famous uh, lineman that they had. And they were, um, Detroit was ahead and went down to about the last uh, uh, 45 seconds. And Detroit had scored and made the score 16 to 14. And uh, all of the, the sudden, New Orleans with the ball, uh, I noticed Don Hendrick, who was the assistant coach, running up to the head coach. And the head coach for the, for the, head coach for the Saints that day, with J.D. North. Nobody even remembers that name. It was his first year, first game, mm-hmm. and they had coach Tom Fears who had coached before, and they had fired Tom Fears the week before. So J.D. North and Don Heinrich sent in the funeral for Tom Dempsey. Now, you remember Dempsey had a shot-off foot on his right kicking foot. He, his, his, uh, he had a uh, form deformed that way, and he had no toes in the right foot. It was kind of like you, if you make a fist in your hand, it's kind of like a stub right there. And uh, he came in, and he was on his own 37-yard line, 63 yards away. <clears throat> and Alex Sheriff came and he said, what are they doing? I said, they're going to kick a field goal. He said, did you tell them that they're on their own 37-yard line? I said, I told them, Alex, that they're going to kick it anyway. Mm-hmm. And he kicked it right down the field, just cleared the bar. Dick Dolak was our field judge at that time. Signal field goal good. I turned to the camera and signal field goal good. And we ran off the field. It was all over 17, 16, the Saints. Oh, nice. Nice. It was in the old, old two-lane stadium. It was long before the Superdome was built. So it was outside in two-lane stadium. Didn't have a lot of wind that day. So he, he had to kick it all that way. He made that decision and won, won the game, 17-16. Now, of course, I, I, I've seen these games' highlights. I wish I would have seen them. I wish I would have been born back in back in the day. I wish I would have seen them actually live because I'm sure it would have been awesome seeing these games live because you've seen more these games like this back in the day when you were refereeing compared to the games nowadays. I, I It's just... I. It's just the thing about the old games that I like. It's stuff like this that you remember most. The games nowadays, I you just can't even... I mean, there's a lot of games I can't even remember because they're so boring to watch. But let's see if you know this. Let's see if you remember this one. The next one. It happened January 6th, 1980. Who were the teams and what was the game? January 6th, 1980? Mm-hmm. 
1979 AFC Championship game. Houston at Pittsburgh. Okay. Uh, I got, I got, that's right. Pittsburgh Steelers and the Houston Oilers. Uh, yep. Houston was, and the Oilers was really Houston. Mm-hmm. And uh, that was a very cold day. It was still on the ground, and, and the field in the Three River Stadium at that time was frozen. And Bob Phelps, the coach of the Oilers, came in and said, Jim, he said, my boy Earl Campbell can't run on this slip grass, slip field. Mm-hmm. He said, he's a close pony. I said, Mom, I don't think we could postpone it, but just think about Franco Harris. He's a running back of the Pittsburgh Steelers. He's a name better traction than, than your boy Earl does. And Bill said, ah, you're probably right. Let's just play. And we, and we played a game that was, uh, uh, again, Pittsburgh Pittsburgh won it. And uh, uh, I don't know whether that was the Ray Renfro catch or was eaten. That was the next yep. year. But, uh, yep. I was I was just about to ask you that, yeah, because it looks like he was ruled—he was ruled to have been out of bounds from an apparent touchdown pass from Dan Pasharini. Yeah. And Pasharini threw it to Renfro, and I was back there. Pasharini and our, our back judge, actually, I think it was our, our field judge, signaled incomplete, and uh, Pasharini said, "He said." He said, Jim, he caught that ball. And I said, I can't see that far. You can't see that far. Mm-hmm. Let's go down and find I went down to, um, to talk to our field judge, Don Orr, and he said he didn't have the possession of the ball when he crossed the outside line. <laughs> so he was out of bounds and incomplete. So I just turned to after a little conference with the back judge and the field judge, anybody else who was there. And I turned to the camera and signaled incomplete. Pittsburgh won the game. We run off the field. That night in Houston and the in the Astrodome, this is long before the Houston Stadium, well, in the Astrodome, they hung me in effigy. Uh, and I, I, I didn't make the call. Fields just made the call, but I I had to make the signal mm-hmm. incomplete. And, uh, and, uh, Dick Enberg and Merlin Olson were doing the game for NBC, mm. and Merlin said, if they had was a replay on that, I think they'd come back and found the call and the catch was good. But there was no instant replay in 1979 or 80. It's replayed in minutes of 86. Mm. So, uh, incomplete. And, uh, um, Bum has never forgotten. In fact, um, this is 2021. Bum, 2020, a year, a year and a half ago, Bum Phillips called me at home. And they said, Bum, how you doing? He said, fine. He lived in Beaumont, Texas. I said, Bill, what's going on? He said, you know, Jim, I was just sitting here thinking about that game there. And he said, you were right. He said, it was right all the way. I just wanted to call you and say hello. So it became good friends with coaches like that. If you try and do the right thing and they know you're trying to do the right thing, they accept. they understand they accept it. And after I get through with these games, I'll ask you about the replay rule. But I will, real quick, before after I get through done with the games and that, I do want to ask you: Do you think if replay was implemented, implemented for that that time, do you think it would have been different the result of the game? 
I don't think so, but uh, I, I did, I've seen the replay um, on television and things like that. I don't think so, but replay didn't come in until 1986. Uh, in fact, there's a story to that one, too. If you go back to 1978, um, they were talking about replay, and the owners were not convinced that replay was a good thing because they slow the game down, change the tempo, and all that. <coughs> so they it took them eight years from 1978 to 1986 mm -hmm. to put the replay in there, and uh, um, I part of that the whole time. Now the next game we got happened January tenth, nineteen eighty two, Dallas at San Francisco, the infamous, the catch game. How about that game? Well, it's right here in Candlestick Park, which is not far from my home. But uh, yeah, I looked a lot of games in Candlestick before they tore that down. But it was in the fourth quarter with about twenty five seconds to go, and Montana called quarterback Montana called timeout. Mm -hmm. We were talked to uh, Bill Walsh, the head coach, and Coach Walsh said, "Yo, it's only third down. So if you can't find Freddie Solomon open, just throw it away." So Joe takes a snap from center, rolled to the right, <clears throat> ran about oh maybe ten yards. And he was being chased by two tall Jones and one of the other Dallas linemen, and two tall knocked him on the ground. Jones lying flat on the ground. He threw the ball lying flat on the ground, and he didn't see the catch. And he looked at me and said, "What happened?" I said, "You threw it in the stands." He said, "What?" <laughs> I said, "No, what? Dwayne Clark caught it. You got a touchdown." And uh, then we come back after that, with a few seconds left, and and uh, the quarterback of the Dallas Cowboys, um, Danny White, uh, comes back to pass. And got hit and fumbled the ball. He said, he turned to me and said, I was throwing it, I was throwing it. I said, no, dear, you were not throwing it. You had some fumble. And for the four and a half, he covered, so the game was over. But it's one of the most, one of the games, again, I get asked all the time, uh, how about the catch? And I said, I've never seen the White Claws, they were 87 from Clemson, never seen jump that high in the air to get a pass. And he caught this one. And Dean looked for the side judge and signaled the touchdown at the time. So I get more questions about that than I get about anything else, I think. Now, if I remember correctly, that was that was uh, Montana, one of Montana's uh, last game, last game, no, that, well, I can't say last game. Because he played in the early 90s for, I believe it was Kansas City. But I believe that was a um, game that he also passed a couple TDs to Jerry Rice, correct? Oh, yeah. Yeah, in fact, I worked the first game that Jerry Rice ever played for the 49ers. And um, it was about, I don't know, second quarter, maybe third. Um, Montana throws a pass to Rice. He's in the end zone. And, and the Niners are behind by a touchdown. And it went right in his hand, and he, he drops the ball. And the people in, in the candlestick, the 49er fans, they didn't know this guy was going to be the best receiver I've ever seen in the NFL. Mm -hmm. He drops the ball, he back to huddle. And Joe turned to him and just patted him on the back and said, Gary, 
you catch the next one. Don't worry about it. And now, on now how, many, how many games would you say you called of uh, the great one? I call him the great one because he is in the NFL, of wide receivers. How many games would you say you called of his? All right. Yes. Oh, probably, probably a dozen. Mm-hmm. Something like that. Keep track of things like that. So I, I don't know. Probably, probably ten or twelve, maybe fifteen. There you go. There you go. Hey, at least you guess. At least you can say, hey, you saw one of the great yeah. ones for at least fifteen games. So <laughs> more than what anybody else yeah. can say. <laughs> but the, yeah. But the next game now happened a year later, November twentieth, nineteen eighty three. Green Bay at Chicago. It was called the 100th game. How about that one? It was a fall goal, and that's where they, they list it now. Um, and uh, when we went to the stadium, it was fine. The first half was fine. Claire was right there on Lake Michigan. We came out to the second half. The fog had come over Lake Michigan uh, and onto the stadium. And as we walked onto the field to start the second half, mm. we couldn't see 50 yards. But the fog would roll in and roll out. But uh, um, uh, Buddy Ryan from the Eagles, I went to him and I said, Coach, uh, what do you want to do? You want to play uh, or, or what? And he said, he's in fog on both sides of the field. Jim, let's play. And so I went to Mike Dick of the, of the Bears and said, Mike, what do you want to do? He said, let's play. We both played. Actually, you could see the long, you could see the, the, the goalposts from one or the other from time to time. And it's just thinking about fog in a football game. Fog really only takes place about in top of a tackle on the end zone, wide receiver to wide receiver, and about 10 yards on either side of the ball. Mm-hmm. But where they were at the time, you could see, all right, 15, 20 yards. And of course, the, the Eagles tried a, a funny one to uh, kick off uh, in the second half. And the Bears tried the old thing they used to do in the school ground, where the one guy would run to the right and the other guy was running behind the left, and they'd fake the handoff. Mm-hmm. Well, they faked the handoff and fumbled the ball, and the other team recovered it. So it didn't fool anybody. Uh, and and the, the interesting part about that game was that Randall Cunningham, the quarterback of the Eagles, set a new passing record, 404 yards he threw that day. Mm-hmm. And passes, but to send a new passing on such a foggy day, and uh, Terry Bradshaw and Glenn Lundquist were doing the game, and Bradshaw was at the analyst, so he came down on the field. He couldn't see up in the booth because it's like when you're driving your car in a fog at night mm-hmm. and your light headlight the fog, it bounces back at you, and so Bradshaw went down the field, and because they couldn't see, the announcer couldn't give, give you down in distance. So I became the announcer. <laughs> I'm sure Michael. The second and eight, third and six, 40 yard line. I just gave a short announcement as the team was breaking the huddle. So I, I became the. Now CBS was doing the game, but they didn't pay me for being the announcer. I get paid as a referee. That's it. That's funny. But hey, how did it feel though to be an announcer though for for like what? Um... Like what you see nowadays, uh, Pe- uh, Pereira rules official, and uh, sure. uh, how how did that feel? 
Well, it was just part of the game. I mean, it's, uh, I just felt the crowd can't see this. The announcer couldn't tell what down the distance it was. So I thought they need to know that. So I'll just make that announcement. It's fine. Yeah. <laughs> That's great. That's great. That's great. I love it. I love it. So the, the next game happened two years ago, also in November. But uh, this one was November 11th. It was San Francisco at Denver, the snowball game. Oh, yeah, that was, what, uh, 19... I guess about 1990? No. 85. 19, 85. 80, 80, 85 was in game. Yep. And uh, they, they, uh, they played the 49ers, and uh, 49ers set up for field goal down at the far end of the field, in the, in the old ball high season. They set up for field goal, and Matt Cavanaugh was the holder. And just as the ball snapped, he caught the ball, and the snowball hit behind him and splattered the where he's going to put the ball down. Didn't bother him at all, but he fumbled the ball. And I've asked him many times since I've seen him when he was coaching. I said, Matt, did you that snowball? He said, I never saw the snowball. He said, my hands were so cold, I couldn't hang on that ball. And, of course, Bill Walsh, the coach, was a little upset with me as he went off, off the field at halftime. And I think the uh, 49ers ended up winning the game. But um, uh, it was a snowball game, and they were throwing snowballs. And, and of course, I've had that dozens of times when you play back there. That, that's going to happen. In Green Bay and Detroit, the throwing of the old Tiger Stadium, uh, and the Buffalo, and the Giants, and, and the Jets, and the, the Pittsburgh, Philadelphia, all those things had, had people throwing snowballs from time to time. This one, people thought this interfered with the game. In my judgment, it didn't, and Matt Kavanaugh said he didn't bother him either. <laughs> oh, boy. So now I got to ask you then, too, like, are there, out of any of these games or any of the games you have officiated, did you have players and coaches attacking you? Like, literally, atta- not. I'm not going to say trying to attack you, literally, like, fight you, but did you have a lot of them come up to your face and say you made the wrong call? Oh, sure, you get that a long time for players. Um, you, you remember who Tom Mack was who played for the Los Angeles Rams? Yes, yes, well, I, I do. Pretty well. and, and I thought uh, I had a, a game of the Coliseum, the LA Coliseum, and he grabbed this defensive lineman and, and took him down and that threw the flag and, and uh, I said holy number 65 and he said Jimmy he said you know I'm I'm 12 years in this league I'm all pro I've been all pro I've been a pro bowl every year I don't have to hold people mm-hmm. I block them I said well Tom you held that time so about three plays later this guy blitzes up the middle nobody gets him Tom reaches out grabs him on the leg and pulled him down. Very obvious. You can see that from the 60th row in the Coliseum. And I threw my flag and I said, Tom, I like that one. He said, well, sometimes you got to protect your quarterback. So, but I always had fun out there. I thought, uh, I mean, this is a fun game. Let's enjoy it and, and have fun with it. I never get upset that somebody called me about a, wrong, a bad name or something like that. Mm-hmm. It's a game. It's a hard game to play. It's very physical in the line of scrimmage. You can't take a beating. It's a tough one. So I never get upset with somebody and disagree with my ball. 
And I agree with you. It is literally a hard game to call, especially in live action. It really is. Any sport for that matter. I mean, the refs go through a lot. Yeah, I don't yeah, I'm a fan and I may not agree with the calls that a lot of refs make, but I at least understand your guys' position. Like it it'd be it's tough in any sport for any ref to make a call that's live, you know? Right there on the spot. It's hard. It really is. You said the right thing, Byron. It's, it's being in the right position to make the call. And that's what officiating is all about. Being in the right position, being able to look the call and make your judgment. If it's a foul, you throw the flag and it's not, you let it go. But don't be too quick with it. Let, take your time and watch the play and then make the call when you know there's the right time to do it. Exactly. Exactly, and I agree, and, mo- and most officials are good with that, but there are a lot, unfortunately, that just either A, don't know how to get into the right position, or B, I hate to say it, and I'm sure there was in your time as well, crooked officials that are betting on the sport or betting on the game to get the advantage. And unfortunately, I I know that has I know that has to happen, and I don't know if it happened in your time, but I know it's happened in this time. I know it has. You remember the name Tim Donahue? Yep, the NBA <laughs> official. Yep. And and the referee who bet on the game and who gave friends of his clues about who's going to win and what to do. Yep. And and he he's been he's been barred from officiating. He uh, was fined, I think, one hundred fifty thousand dollars, and and so on. Yep. Byron, we have never, never, never had an NFL official accused of of bribery or cheating on a play. Never. Nobody's ever had that accusation. Oh, they yell and they scream at you and say, you're cheating me, you're cheating me from time to time, but it's never happened. And I've got to disagree with you very, very strongly. We have very officials with integrity. When they hire an official, they want to know how low what's your level of integrity. It's got to be a hundred percent, and you, you you just can't do that. I've never worked on a crew, and I've had probably oh eight or ten crews in the thirty-one years that I've worked. I've never had an official thinking even about cheating or or even a gambler. Now, gamblers will come after you. I've sat on an airplane flying to a game or from a game, and people know who I am to see the a picture they see on television and they come and talk about well, how's Joe Montana's back and how's John Elway and how's this, how's that. Never, never, never happened to say anything. I said, I don't know. I don't know. I'm not into that. So they uh, they leave you alone if you just hold, hold your head high and do what you got to do. Be honest with it. We don't have any officials today. And I was a trainer for three years in the Middle team, 13, 14, 15. And so I watched the whole work with officials all the time. Never had anyone even close to, to cheating or giving a favor to the other team. Now, before I get back into the last couple games, I got to ask you then, because me as a fan, and I, I know the other fans, you ref the sport. But watching back on the game that happened two years ago between... The Los Angeles Rams and New Orleans Saints, that infamous 
Even Roby Coleman has came out and said it was pass interference. Do, do you believe the ref had something to do with that call, not making that call? What, what was your take on that? Because I know you had to see the game like the rest of us. He missed it. He should have called pass interference, but he just didn't see it. Um, let me give you an example. You ever watch a magician with card tricks? Yeah. And move the card back. Right? Yes. And then you'll say, when you're sitting 10 feet away from him, you say, how did he do that? You're looking right at it, and you don't see it. Mm-hmm. It's called intentional, unintentional blindness. It happens that way all the time. It happens if it's officiating. I, I remember doing an interview with, with Chris Berman on ESPN one time, and uh, Joe and uh, Joe Tyson was was there, and, and he was asking about Joe Tyson's uh, in, interception. Mm-hmm. And uh, he said, how do you think it happened? I said, well, Joe tells me that he misread the coverage. He did read the coverage right. I said, wait a minute. This is a full-time quarterback. That's all he does. Every day, all season long, he does, he does what he's supposed to do. And he throws the ball. And he threw it to the wrong guy. He misread the coverage. How does that happen? Mm-hmm. And, and Boomer, Boomer, Boomer said, he's a human being. He's going to make mistakes like that. Well, that's what officials are. They're human beings. They're going to make mistakes like that. And as much as everybody else sees it, and it's easy for you, Byron, and me now, sitting in my living room, watching on television and watching the replay over and over and saying, how could they miss that? It was so obvious. Mm-hmm. They, they missed it. They just didn't see it. It's just unintentional mind. It happens to players. It happens to coaches. The coach leaves the field and says, you know, if I had to do that over again, I wouldn't do this. In fact, the New England game um, uh, up in, uh, they up in, Buffalo, up in, in uh, Boston, and they, instead of running the ball with Marshawn Lynch, uh, Seattle threw the ball, it was intercepted. Mm-hmm. And coaches said, why did you do that? They, well, we thought that was the right play. And officials are saying they think it was the right play. Sometimes they miss it. And they, they don't miss very many, but sometimes miss them that are really important. And that one with the Rams and the Saints was a really important game, but the officials just flat out missed it. Yeah, and that's so sad to see because I know after that the ref got a lot of heat. And there was a lot of discussion on the pass interference and all that. And if the game, the Saints got screwed. Uh, of course, it's going to be media attention driven, of course, but I mean, just me, a fan watching it, and the other fans, I mean, I, that's what I thought at first, too. It's honestly just mistakes happen. I mean, it, it we're all human. We're all human. It happens. We make it every day in our lives, you know? It just happened to be in one of the biggest games, and, you know, like you said, it happened right there. He was watching it. But in his eye, he felt like nothing happened. You know, it was just a yep. simple mistake. And the, and the officials are under such uh, scrutiny from the league office. I mean, look at the, the game. They look at the films over and over. They talk to officials regularly during the week. Why did they call this or why they didn't call this? And it, 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 it gets me a tough time. You're really under a lot of scrutiny. You, you can't get away with it cheating or calling that uh, against one team or thinking that you bet on one team, officials are getting a pretty good salary now 
They don't need to do this. Right. Right. Exactly. So now the uh, last two games are, before I ask you which out of all of them I we've talked about, which one was your favorite. Uh, the second to last one it happened January 17th. 1988 it was the infamous fumble game cleveland at denver what about that one i was the game before when denver was at cleveland and elway drove them 85 yards for a winning score i think it was now i get the next one i get the same game the next year in denver mm-hmm. and uh denver was was winning but cleveland had a chance on about the 20 yard line to run in, run down a kid named um, um, Ernest Miner, who was a good running back. And just before that, Bernie Kozar, the quarterback of the Cleveland Browns, calls a timeout and he goes over to coach Marty Schottenheimer. I know Marty pretty well known for a long time. Unfortunately, Marty died just a couple of weeks ago. But when, he, when Bernie went over there, he came back and I said, uh, Went in the huddle for television timeout to finish, and I said to Bernie, "I said, did you do any good by going over and talking to the coach?" He said, "No, but it makes him feel better if I go over and talk to him." Mm-hmm. So, next play, hands off to Ernest Miner, and Miner fumbles the ball. Denver recovers it and wins both games, the, the one before and that one, uh, beating beating Cleveland. And it's I, I just had a lot of fun up there. I I, I talked to players and sit around and Walter Payton would untie your shoe if you stood close by. It was all kinds of styles there. I, I really enjoyed being in the field. And now the last one happened later that year, the following year, December 31st, 1988. Philadelphia at Chicago, the infamous Fog Bowl. Fog Bowl, right. We talked about that. And we talked about the fact that both coaches I went to them, they wanted to play. And um, I talked to um, the commissioner's representative that day was Joe Brown, vice president. And so I was, after I talked to both coaches, I was in touch with Joe. And uh, and, and every, every time out, I would go over behind the Chicago Bear bench, pick up the telephone and talk to Mr. Brown and say, both coaches want to play, we're going to play. He said, it's your decision. And it was. It's up to the referee. That was me. who makes the decision. And uh, after the game, in the locker room, getting ready to change, and Joe Brown called to the press box. He said, Jim, don't change your clothes. He said, um, NBC wants to inter- interview-, interview you. So a guy named Will McDonough, Sean McDonough's father, Will McDonough, uh, in the hallway outside the locker room in in the Soldier Field, mm-hmm. he interviewed. And then following that, Jim Gray, who was at the time with, him, with the NBC, he, they were gonna do the next game when Jim was there. And I've known Jim for a long time, good guy, good friend. And he said, he wants to interview So they interviewed me and, and he was teasing me. He said, you know, Jim, I was on the field and I couldn't see the goalposts. How can you see it? I said, Jim, that's because I can see it because I'm a referee and you're a reporter. <laughs> so he laughed. We had a good time. And, and uh, it was just one of those games we got to make a decision. You see, if you held the game up, if you sent the team back to the locker room, 
How long do you keep them? If you keep them a half hour and feel clears, can they play again? They go to the locker room for 10, 15 minutes at halftime, and that's about it. Uh, they go to the bathroom and do what they got to do. But but um, keep them in for a half hour, or you couldn't postpone it. This was a, a Saturday night game. The next game was Sunday, another playoff game, another part of the country. I don't know who was playing, but in two NFL teams, that was Sunday. Um, and then on Monday, and that was January 1st, that's normally the Rose Bowl, the Cotton Bowl, and all those. They postponed those games for the Sunday. The college is on planet on a Sunday. They moved to the Monday. So after that, Philadelphia to Cullen game, the next game was two NFL, was an NFL game playoff. And the following game was with the, all the colleges were playing in the normal January 1st game. So you would wait till Tuesday to play. Whoever won Tuesday got to play the next Saturday or Sunday. So we thought that the time to, to sing it. play the game. Everybody's in the same condition. And uh, Chicago won the game, but that's where it goes sometimes. So now I got to ask you then, after we went through all them games, what was your most memorable game out of, a mo- out of the ones I just mentioned that you remember most? Oh, we just went through a half hour of all the games I can remember all of them. I think there's another game that was probably more memorable to me in terms of memory. And by when I worked, I think, over 500 NFL games in my career. So mm-hmm. uh, I'm not... The one game that I remember very well was kind of stressful for me was the Super Bowl eleven played between the Minnesota Vikings and the Oakland Raiders mm-hmm. in the Rose Bowl. I grew up four miles in the Rose Bowl. My dad was an official. He would officiate games in, in junior college and college. And I would go as a kid, maybe seven, eight, nine years of age, go to the game with him. And I get to sit on the bench. That security wasn't very much in those days. I was sitting on a passing unit card bench. And half the time, my dad came over and said, See that kid there? Number 28? Yeah, that's Jackie Robinson. He said, He really could be something someday. And of course, sitting alongside Jackie Robinson was exciting, but then in, that was in 1937, 38. Wow. In 1947, my dad refereed the Rose Bowl game between UCLA and Illinois. I was there that day. 30 years later to the month, from January 47 to January 77, I got a chance to work in the same place that my dad worked. That was very, very important to me. It will always be my favorite game. The Raiders beat the Vikings 32-14. That that's awesome. I can't I can't tell you that gives me goosebumps. He just hearing that. So I also want to say ask you this too. You, I'm seeing this now. You are the only referee to work consecutive Super Bowls, and will likely be the only one to ever do so. How does it feel to possibly know that you might be the only ref ever to do that in NFL history? When I worked at, I worked the Rose Bowl, excuse me. I worked the uh, game between the Super Bowl eleven between the Vikings and the Raiders. Um, after the game, I was talking to Art McDowell, supervisor. I said, "Well, I get this assignment." He said, "Well, you finished number one you're in your position. You take the number one." They changed it a little bit now. Take the number one in your position. I said, well, I'm going to try to be, try to be number one next year. And that's why I went Super Bowl 12 between the Dallas Cowboys and the 
Denver Broncos in the Superdome. The mm-hmm. first game, first Super Bowl game he played in the in the, in the, in the Superdome. So uh, I, I guess I finished first each of those two years. I worked, as you know, I worked 29 NFL playoff games, mm-hmm. uh, 29, 31. So I was, I was very fortunate. I really enjoyed it and a great opportunity for me. And as of January 1st, 2019, uh, I don't know if he's alive still to this day, but you and Ben Dreif, you may know him, are currently still the only referees remaining from the AFL-NFL merger. Can you believe that? Yeah. And... um I've known Ben for a long time. <clears throat> he came in the AFL. I had a chance <clears throat> in 1960 <clears throat> when the AFL started and the NFL was adding officials. When I joined the NFL, they only had 12 teams. Mm-hmm. And they were adding that year, 1960. And the next year, 1961, when the Vikings came in. So um, the NFL needed officials. The AFL needed officials. I was working the colleges in what they call the Pacific Coast Conference. It's now called the Pac-12. And uh, I never applied. They they came to me and said, we'd like you to work in the AFL. Mm. And the next week, NFL called, we'd like to work in the NFL. So I had a choice of the, either one. And I chose the NFL because I'd seen, I'd seen other poor teams try to compete with the NFL and they, they didn't make it, they failed. So I thought the NFL was a better choice. I enjoyed working in the NFL and, and I was, my first six years where I was field judge, I liked that because I got a chance to work with some of the great people, officials, and don't we know it, Ron Gins and Bill Downs and Bud Brubaker and Norm Schachter and Red Pace and just all these guys were great referees. And I wanted to be a referee, but I came in as a field judge and got to work with all these great referees. I learned an awful lot from them. Mm. That's awesome and amazing to hear, and you got your ultimate goal. I mean, you became awesomely a historic referee, more than what uh, Pereira and these guys can say nowadays. Uh, Pereira's gone retired, but he called some big games, but not as many as you have, and that's amazing. Now I see you, now I see you, uh, how'd you get, how'd you get the gig where it says you worked as the ref for 18 editions of Battle with the Network Stars. Did the network call you, or did did they get a, or did you get a hold of them for that gig? No, they called me, yeah, yeah. And it's great to be, you know, I worked with CBS, NBC, ABC, ESPN, worked for all those guys and all the announcers, and I've had a very fortunate career, a very... I'm very blessed to have been able to do what I did. Yeah. Perfect. Uh, that's awesome to hear. And also, I see, too, you're an author. Tell us about that. I was a, a high school principal and became a school superintendent uh, in the late 70s. And I was doing some speaking, and they had a lot of speakers for conventions, Fortune 500 companies, and a lot of those people. And they wanted some one of hired me as a speaker, and I was speaking for a number of years, a good friend of mine in the speaking business named Og Bandino said, you ought to write a book. I said, I never write a book. 
He said, no, you're the fog. So my first book I wrote in about 1980 was uh, uh, Build a Better You, starting out. Build a Better You, starting out. And, uh, and then since then, I've written 13 books. And uh, I, I do a, I now have a, had it now for, let's see, 15, 16 years. Uh, I wrote for a newspaper, I'm a columnist. I have a weekly column uh, in a newspaper called On the Tennis Side of Sports. And it takes sports issues that happen, incidents that happen, and turn them over to how they can make a positive difference in people's lives. So even though there are negative things that happen, I turn it into the positive and try to make it a thing that people can live by. So I tag my column this week coming out on Monday will be about Tiger Woods. Mm-hmm. And the Tiger, 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 Tiger's almost took his life. And, uh, and the, I, I used to teach driver education in, in high school. I taught that for four years. Mm-hmm. And, and I would say to students, speed kills. Mm-hmm. If you're going too fast, you're out of control. And right now, as I saw today, Tiger said he doesn't remember anything about the accident. He just got away from it. And an SUV, he was driving a very nice Genesis SUV, is a little top heavy. So once it started to turn on its side, he kept rolling. He rolled for, I think it was reported he rolled for 700 feet yep. over and over. Yep. Yeah. So I try to take those issues that happen. And people want to talk about sports all the time. They use the expressions in their business. Okay, this is called first and gold or first and ten or let's do this, let's do that all the sports analogies. And uh, so I try to use those for other people who are just observers of sports have never been on the field. So that's a fun thing to write. I write, I write almost every day, and I write these uh, weekly articles for the newspaper. Yeah, and I got to ask you, has, has those books made any uh, top sellers Do you, that you know of? In stores? Yeah. I, I co-authored one called Chicken Soup for the Sports Fan Soul. And the, the Chicken Soup authors of Jack Canfield and my picture, Hanson, been friends of mine for a long time. They have written a lot of Chicken Soup books, but I went to them and I said, you don't have anyone for the sports fans. Mm. And I can, they said, go for it. So we got, I guess we probably got um, two or three hundred stories turned in. It took the best 101. So it's called 101 Chicken Soup for the Sports Fan, the best of. And it, uh, it, it, it was the best song. It sold over a million copies. Wow, that's amazing. Good for you. Good for you. So now I want to talk current NFL, like we talked about earlier, the replay rule. Do you think okay. do you think the NFL will stick with a ruling on indeed what's of pass interference and what's not cuz there's been many variations of it dating back to when you were officiating how can the NFL resolve this issue and make it a legit call cuz nobody now knows I don't even know, as a fan, casual fan watching it, and been for years, what's the difference between pass interference defense to pass interference offense? Please help us out there on what they can do to fix it. 
There's not much difference. It's a matter of who gains an advantage. If an offensive receiver pushes off and catches the ball, he gains an advantage. It's offense OPI, offensive pass interference. If a defensive mind grabs a receiver is about to catch the ball and pulls his arm down, it's DPI, defensive pass interference. And it's really hard, Byron, really hard on officials down the field. The back side of the field judge, side judge have that responsibility. These guys are running four, 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 five, four yard dashes. They're very mm-hmm. speedy. It's really fast. The ball's coming about 30 or 40 miles an hour and they're up trying to get it. And it's a very, it's one of the toughest calls and probably maybe the toughest call. But when it started in 1986, um, a lot of officials didn't like it. And, but I was the other side. I like it. I said to the crew that we had, I said, look to the, Let's see if we can do our job just a little bit better so replay does not get involved. And the first year in the crew that I had, we had one, one turnover all year long. Wow. Because I think it concentrated on it and worked on it. And now it's gotten to the point where it happens so many times during so much grabbing going on. They have a lot of the things in the NFL called tactile contact. You mm-hmm. can touch the receiver. The receiver can touch the defender. And they're kind of what we call chicken play down all the way down the field and they're running fast patterns and things. And it's really hard for officials to call pass in a first state. It happens so quickly. But to do the best they can with it. And the NFL keep trying to change the rules and make it make it fair. Sometimes the defense is getting an advantage, so they change the rule. And maybe the offense gets a bad, so they change the rule back and forth. And no wonder you can't understand about it. Right. So they change it all. Officials have a hard time understanding it. So they work at it. They look at film all the time. They look at, they talk, have a lot of discussion about the discussion about that. And so um, it, it's a tough thing. I don't know how they're going to change it. I don't know how they're going to make it any better or easier on the officials to make a, a passing French call. And the last one before I let you go is what about catch or no catch this is also one that's been egging me as a fan and others too what can the nfl do to change that because they've had so many variations where they've messed up on it like from the calvin johnson which he hasn't recovered from that uh the des bryant one also same thing he hasn't recovered from that so what can they do to fix that the ball comes so fast and the receivers are going so fast and the catch happens so quickly. And, and what they've had to say is that if you catch the ball and both feet are inbounds and you go out of bounds, you're fine. And both feet got to touch inbounds. In addition to that, you have to make a, a, a football move. You have to catch the ball and have possession of it and be able to do something with it. And boy, it happens so fast because once you catch it, the defensive guy, it hits you as hard as you can bang and the ball comes loose. The question is, did he have it long enough? Mm. It's pretty hard for you to on the field to make that judgment. So they go to replay, and it's a replay official okay, will look at it three or four times before it makes a decision. Well, the official on the field don't have that three or four times. They get it one time in real, in real time. Mm. And that's the way it goes. They make it. How they're going to change it, how they make it better, I don't have an answer for it. And I don't think they do either. I agree with you, and that's unfortunate. Because they're losing a lot of fans on it. They're losing a lot of yeah. fans. But fans don't like the game. 
It's still a very popular game. And uh, I wrote a book, uh, one of the books I wrote was called Super Bowl Sunday, The Day America Stops. And Super Bowl Sunday, everybody stops. This last year wasn't very good because of the pandemic and the fans mm. and the yep. they could do what they could do. But it'll come back next year. We'll hopefully see a, a full-time uh, Super Bowl game with all the fans and all the coaches and everybody there. And I hope you're right. I miss those. We need to go back to our normal times. I know you yep. guys. I know you got to be itching for that too. I mean, California is in major lockdown still to this day because of pol- politics. I don't want to get into it with you, but and I'm sure you don't either. But it's just its whole thing is so politicized. I, you know, I just want normalcy. The fans—that's what makes the game, makes sports. You know, all that, and without that, it's right. just nothing. You know. Exactly. Yeah, we hope we get back to normal too. You've been very kind to allowing me part of your program today. I really appreciate that. Aaron. thank you. Definitely, and you're more you're more than happy to come on anytime you want. I got your number. Uh, I'll text you. I'll also email you as well if you want to come on again sometime. Thank you. That's a wonderful opportunity. We hope you see. Hope hope your program goes well, and, and thank you for. Again, for the opportunity. Yeah, no problem, and I'll definitely stay in touch with you. Okay, thanks, Robert. You're welcome. Have, Have a good, good night. You too. Bye. Bye-bye. Jim Tunney, everybody. Longtime NFL official. Awesome conversation. Proud to have it. So I'm going to exit the show, this fourth episode installment with Jim Tunney. It was a great show. I hope you guys take a good listen to it. Great knowledge. Of all his years, awesome, awesome listen. Please listen. And now we got an episode coming up tomorrow. We're going to try again. Second installment. Hopefully it goes well. His phone stays charged. It all goes well. But we're going to do Jermaine Jones again for the fifth episode. So stay tuned tomorrow night. It's going to be a fun show. You guys have a good night.